Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Matthew Kumar. Matthew is an excellent video game writer. He's written for numerous publications through the years. He also uh, made a brilliant zine called EXP, and he now runs a a Tumblr uh, called Every Game, where he writes about pretty much every game that that he plays. And and it's brilliant because um, one of my favorite things about Matthew is his his taste, right? He has a real, really good taste. You know, I I love people who, who really work hard on on finding and discovering new games. One of my favorite things about the show, in fact, is speaking to people who introduce me to brand new games, and, and Matthew introduces me to a whole bunch, and even whole systems that I really didn't have a, a, a huge knowledge of, the, the Neo Geo Pocket Color uh, especially. Um, also, Matthew, uh, he, he makes games himself at MK Ultra Games, uh, and he hosts his own podcast called Loose Cannons Pod, Um uh, he does a lot of good stuff. He's 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 uh, an excellent interviewer. Really interesting chat. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, last week's episode where I did the sort of double bill. And um, just as an update, in case you don't follow the show on Twitter, uh, Jen, who was on the show from Checkpoint, uh, singular, the the alien to my <laughs> aliens. Um, their their Kickstarter was was a success the the day after the episode posted. I, I'm not sure if I had anything to do with that, but I was thrilled that um it went ahead and they get to now make this series, which uh, really does look look amazing. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpoint show on Twitter or it's checkpoints podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. If you have the money and the inclination, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. All donations are very gratefully received and go into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, as always, rate and review the show on iTunes, tell a friend, all that good stuff. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. I genuinely, I think Wide Open Space is one of one of the worst pieces of music ever created, and like that is entirely uh, biased. And it's I have such negative associations with that song of like, probably I think it was like my first teenage proper heartbreak, and that song was mm-hmm. like playing over the the indie disco as I was weeping into my my strongbow. I imagine so. I've just it just it really bothers me that song. In every sense. Anyway, well, they've got great B sides. Anyway, <laughs> let's um, let's formally begin. I suppose let's do a, a a a formal introduction. So, Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, uh, I am a game designer. I currently run my own small company called MK Ultra Games, but I'm also kind of a Jack of all trades and definitely a master of none in terms of that I was a games journalist for a, a long time. I wrote for Edge and 
I wrote for a short period of time at Rock Paper Shotgun, Eurogamer. Uh, I did my own zine, which I was a huge fan of personally, because I feel like <laughs> I was the only person who was a fan of my zine, uh, EXP. Um, and yeah, I, I actually even do my own podcast, which is about film called Loose Cannons. So anyone who is on iTunes right now, maybe you could give that a little subscribe if you fancy <laughs> it. I, I, I love your... Um your exhaustive projects like the you have the what the game blog the every game which is like every game you finish you'll write a sort of short piece about it. and the the podcast is you're basically trying to watch every movie that canon ever produced right yeah um it's one of those things where like uh, definitely over the last few years uh not so much this year um because i've had to knuckle down on some work i was thinking every year i should do a project that's kind of for me because it should give me something to like explore like aspects of myself or my work in a different way than I'm not used to. So every game I finished was kind of the first thing that I did because I'd spent such a long time doing my zine and I'd sort of dropped out of doing it because just a matter of production and everything else was taking too much time. So I thought I would just start a Tumblr and do something with it. But most Tumblrs obviously are just people post pictures and, and so on. And I want to do something interesting. I thought, well, every game that I play, I'll write something about it. It doesn't have to be something where I have put a lot of thought into the article. It doesn't have to be like a review. It just has to be something I noticed or some way I wanted to write about it. Just whatever, like, you know, stream of consciousness, just go for yeah. it. I've done that for about three years now, and it's at everygame.tumblr.com if anyone wants to give it a follow. And there's a ton of writing there, actually. And some of the articles, like, I think are pretty good. Like, I did an interesting one, actually, about... Before we started this uh, podcast, we had a short conversation about Britpop, but there's one where I talk about Britpop and Wipeout because I just played through Wipeout on the Vita and I was like, it was making me think about how PlayStation uh, created its own space by being so like dance culture at the time of Britpop. Absolutely. Things like that, basically, yeah. And Loose Cannons is just... Uh, I just wanted to do a podcast with my friend Justin DeClue. I think we're very funny together. It's more of a comedy podcast than it is like a, you know, like a serious film podcast and using kind of bad movies and trying to give people at the same time as get, making them laugh, give them an overview of like cinema kind of in the 80s and uh, is kind of an interesting challenge, I thought. And although we sort of drift in and out of doing it, I think we have about... 60 or 70 episodes now um and it's been uh, another interesting project to do for myself more than anybody is it like i'm I, i'm gonna completely immediately uh sidetrack from video games to talk about canon films because i saw that documentary which i imagine you did as well the, the history of canon film like mm. is there is there are you able to get an exhaustive like collection of canon films there must be a million things that have never made air or are only available on vhs or something Oh yeah, there's. We repeatedly uh, are unable to find uh, films. Definitely during the early years, because I decided we would start before the uh, two Israeli brothers who go into Baikan and actually bought it. So we began with a lot of these strange um, kind of black and white uh, kitchen sink kind of sex dramas, um, and there was a lot of. Uh, for example, once they came to once it was even before it was bought by. Um, Golan and Globus, they would buy Israeli films and put them on, I guess, in Jewish cinemas, probably in the New York area, because it started as a New York project. Yeah. And um, a lot of those films are really, really hard to find, if not completely impossible, outside of Israel. And we don't speak, you know, the language. So even if we could find them, probably we would see them. So those ones have had to kind of accept it to skip. But one of the interesting things is you, when you watch something like this, or you do projects where you, 
you try and do something and it all encompassing you get these you know these trends and these 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 repeated motifs and things that you see like the way in which the canon films they were desperate to be taken seriously so you keep hitting these incredibly dull um adaptations of literature that are also sort of trashy because they put in extra sex stuff because they don't yeah. want to see it so at the same time they're like trying to win oscars but they can't resist trying to be populist so at the same time they never please anybody yeah well at the same time they're put through it constantly throwing out ninja films and breakdancing films like we've had a really good era actually um because we are talking about the ninja films the the action films the death wishes and it's it's some of the films are incredibly funny to talk about and some episodes we're just so bored and depressed by what we've seen <laughs> we just don't have anything good to talk about oh that is that is a fun project um well, let's. I mean, we're not going to be exhaustive, but let's let's attempt uh, uh, something close to that. And um, if you can remember, Matthew, what was your very first experience of a video game? Yeah, so I have a really, really strong memory of this, and it's and it's actually one of my like when you think of like fond memories, like it's one of the ones I'm always going to return to because. So I grew up in the west coast of Scotland, and. Um, my memory is there used to be a building which has been uh, knocked down now because they're replacing it called the Magnum in Irvine, which is where I didn't get, I was born in Glasgow, but I grew up on the West Coast in this town called Irvine, which is a new town and it's really nothing to remark about it. But people always remember because I had this place, the Magnum, which was like a big swimming pool and, and tennis courts and everything people go to. And I remember I must have went there with my dad when I was probably about, I, I mean, I'm going to say probably about three or four, okay. honestly. Uh, maybe I was maybe older I'm not even sure I can't really be totally clear and um, my memory is that they had a sit down vector Star Wars machine in the kind of lobby area of the Magnum oh wow and I remember my first memory is sitting on my dad's lap holding that controller have you ever used the the, the Star Wars arcade machine I've never seen a, a proper sit down version of it no well it has this unique controller which is kind of like a yoke but it's had has these two handles that you can push forward and back and you twist the steering wheel and has buttons on the top and at your trigger finger. Okay. And that's the first controller I ever he- held. And I remember sitting on my dad's knee in this machine playing Star Wars because I was a wee boy and I loved Star Wars. And I still, obviously, to some extent, do love Star Wars even now. And um, it's a game with the vector graphics are, you know, they're, you know, if you've ever seen a real vector machine, the vector graphics are so bright, the lines just, they just glow oh, brighter it's than unbelievably like, beautiful. It's it's beautiful, and at the same time, that machine had um, all of the the voices. Uh, I think it's like use the force when you're shooting at the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. the exhaust port. And so I just had this really strong blazing memory. When my dad had been swimming or something, or or he'd been playing um, what's that sport where you hit the ball against the wall? Squash. <laughs> squash yeah maybe squash or something and i'd been i was there for some reason i'm not sure why but afterwards he as a, i guess he, he sat down and he played the game with me and yeah that's it really stands out in my mind as as kind of the point where i was like holy shit video games yeah no i mean <laughs> there's something so magical about the kind of the the vector games because i think because they're impossible to reproduce you can't you can't see the same effect like on any sort of a screen other than like a proper oscilloscope screen they're so powerful and intense now i'm imagining this experience isn't going to be i mean it's formative in retrospect but it's not like you would have gone home and been like right okay give me a computer or something so how did that progress 
as you got older? Well, it, I mean, it probably didn't. I didn't go home straight away and say, give me a computer. But I was obsessed with computers as a, as a small boy. Like I have a really another really strong memory, funnily enough, of um, really, really see, somehow seeing. I don't know how I saw this seeing a picture of a computer cake like as in a birthday cake that was shaped like a like an old computer right like a like a bbc micro or something okay and becoming obsessed with the idea that i would get that as my birthday cake do you know what i mean (laughs) and the thing is that i remember that my mom in fact that we did get this cake and um i wish i could remember if we had any pictures of it or anything i always ask my mom recently to try and like find pictures of uh, our trips and all that and stuff because it's been a wee while since I've really dug into my my own past as a child do you know what I mean and I really want to see this cake again because I remember being the most incredible thing I ever saw and that I remember most of all was that there was so much uh sugar and everything in it that we couldn't eat it we just had another cake it was just purely <laughs> for show that cake and it was shortly after that after me complaining and complaining about getting a computer in the row, I was like, you're too young, you're too young. I must have been about, I guess, about five or so when they finally got me a computer. Um, they got me an Amstrad CPC 6128, not the 464 or that a lot of the other kids or people that you may have talked to uh, on episodes of the show might have had. I, was, I, was, I got this 6128, and the reason we got it was because a guy was – in the town and Irvin was selling it secondhand because he wanted to buy a motorbike and I guess we got a good deal on it. <laughs> and so I don't know enough about the Amstrad CPC to know whether or not a 6218 or 6128 is better or worse than those other ones. I imagine it's better because the number's higher. Yeah, well, so basically the 464 had a tape deck and uh, it had 64K of memory, okay. whereas the 128 had 128K of memory, which was a big deal, and it had a disk drive. Now, the actual benefit of that, bizarrely, this is getting some really, like, this is for the old men in your audience. <laughs> Having the disk drive was not just that you had a disk drive. It was that when you bought your separate tape deck, you got a tape counter. Because I believe that Amstrad, maybe in the original 6464, they had the tape counter it built into the machine. But Amstrad were really slapdash and they would always cut corners so they cut the tape court counter so when you played an old video game that had multi-load which meant that when you had to load each level in turn if you died you had to rewind back to a certain tape count so you could start the next okay. the previous level and if you didn't have a tape counter it was basically impossible you're completely screwed i don't know how anyone actually ever managed to play multi-loads with it with an, with an inbuilt tape deck without a tape counter i guess possibly by that time multi-load had fallen out of fashion um and i never played a lot of multi-load games but i do remember particularly being happy with it when i had to rewind to start a level again (laughs) so did so did it live up to your expectations like would you even have had expectations aged five or was it just like oh we've got a computer this is the best um well, it's interesting because one of the first games I got was Star Wars, actually. Okay. I got the home Star Wars game. And one of the things, things is that it changed. I initially, I was, a, or rather, I was a, already the kind of game player that I am now, which was that it wasn't that the graphics or whatever weren't as good. It was that I realized that the Star Wars game only actually has one level. And you just play that over and over again. And it gets harder and everything. But... The challenge itself of becoming really good at it was not as interesting to me as the idea of like progressing through an experience. So okay. I remember playing it 
a lot. But eventually getting kind of tired of it and putting it away, not because it was ugly or not as good as the the um, arcade version, because frankly, like as a kid, it's not as good, but it's not, you can't tell the, you're not discerning enough to really tell how different it is. Yeah. Like in my memory, it's pretty much as good as the arcade version. I just remember being like, well, I've destroyed the Death Star once. Doing it five, 10, 12 more times is not going to be that interesting to me. Even with, you know, taller towers and more TIE fighters to fight yeah. off. So how did that change then? Like, I'm, I'm assuming other games would have come into play that, that kind of pulled you back in. Well, I mean, I think it was like, for me, and it, it's one of the big things that kind of, it, it's funny because this is the era that really shaped my life in a lot of ways because I got the Amstrad, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went out and I started buying or got my parents to buy me Amstrad Action. Now, Amstrad Action is an interesting magazine because it's the first one, actually, that Future Publishing ever published. Because obviously there was Zap64 and there was, um, you know, all these other ones, right? But Amstrad Action was Future Publishing's first entry into the, the market, and it was for Amstrad CPC owners. And I remember being just at the age where you could just about read the magazine, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're reading these, what you view as the cool adults who get to spend all day playing games and then writing really funny stuff about them like not just like not just like here's the graphics here's the sound here's how good this game is which a lot of the magazines were i can't remember the other acu or something maybe in the name of the the very dry amstrad magazine that i maybe got one issue of but this was absolutely hilarious i would i would honestly read these magazines like with tears going down my face crying <laughs> laughing the same as i was when i was like reading the beano or something and i just became I just thought these guys were so cool. Like, and some of these guys actually, like, I've actually met now. So only very briefly, but he's good friends with a friend of mine, Frank O'Connor, who works at I think um, three is it three four three that does all the Halo stuff. Yeah, because he used yeah. to work at Bungie, and I, I remember Frank O'Connor actually from when he used to write for Me Machines. He was one of one of that sort of cast of mm. characters that I really identified with as a kid. Yeah, I would go on to read. Um, uh, mean machines as well uh cvg and everything else i became an absolute avid reader of of games journalism more actually than i was a games player like i would get amstrad action right and i would play the tape and i would buy games and i would read and i would see what they said was good so like i made sure to buy for example rick dangerous 2 because that was a mega smash or whatever and it was like double a and 97 percent. but more than anything Every week, or yeah, basically every week, I'd go to town with my mum and my at least my mum, they'd get stuff for the week, you know, go to Tesco's and that, and we'd go to what was at the time John Menz's, and I would buy magazines, and sometimes if I was lucky, I would buy a tape as well, like a two ninety nine or a three ninety nine tape, yeah. right? And the magazines. Eventually, I got to the point where I was buying so many, I would buy. Amstrad Action, I would buy like Mean Machines and CVG. I, I wasn't crazy about Mean Machines, but I did like CVG for a while. Um, when I got my Game Boy, I would buy Total. I wouldn't. I, then there was other stuff. Um, as I got older, I would go buy and buy Bakushish. I've got a whole, basically a whole set of Amiga, Amiga Powers, even though I never actually owned an Amiga. I've got Super Plays. You know, I've got, I mean, I just loved reading games journalism, which is bizarre to think that now as an adult, I hate it all. It's all bad. There's nothing I want to read. There's just no joy in it for me anymore. And I find people's opinions asinine and uninteresting for the most part. Whereas at that time, I just thought these people were amazing and I, I really looked up to them. And, and 
and I it it, it formed a lot of my sense of humor. Uh, formed a lot of my like ideas of of how honest you got to be. Like a person like Stuart Campbell, who people who have very negative opinions on across basically the whole games industry and politics. Yes. Now, like he he is uh, someone who I genuinely consider a hero, which sounds insane, but I just have never respected someone so much for having such stridently un uh, like often unacceptable opinions and being able to argue them in a clear fashion. Like you go back and read those old issues of uh, Amiga Power. And as as true, you will laugh and you'll probably cry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the the day I discovered that Reverend Stuart Campbell was the guy behind Wings Over Scotland just was I, I can't tell you how shocked and amazed and confused I was at this revelation. I had no idea until we're talking like six months before the previous Indie Ref election. I was like, what? Like Re- Reverend Stu from from like the forums and magazines and stuff. Very, very bizarre. But, but I mean, it... that's. Oops, sorry. I no, no, no. Carry on. You off. Yeah, but I mean, that's one of those things where I say that's this period of my life was hugely formative because obviously I kept up with what Reverend Stuart Campbell has been up to, and I always. I mean, obviously, I don't know your opinions on it. I don't, we may get into a conversation here, but I am hugely in favour of Scottish independence. Oh, uh, same, same, and... same. I voted yes. So oh. I'm very disappointed it was a, a negative vote. Next time, yeah, maybe. I... It's to me like it's like it's a example of somewhere where like uh, Scotland should be standing on its own two feet and it's not uh, leaving England and Wales countries, which I genuinely love and have hugely fond memories of uh, and Northern Ireland to like to leave them alone. It's to stand beside them as an independent country and, and you know, show them what can be done. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like rather than just be under the yoke of a government that doesn't care about uh, Scotland any more than it cares about anybody else. So to me, like for example, like Reverend Stu going to do that, like it's like it's part of his ability to write in a funny and engaging way, and sometimes a shocking and and disturbing way. I think that makes him such a good voice for that. Like I was someone who was so inspired by him and the whole like indie ref. That even though I obviously live in Canada, I I went back for two months before the indie referendum and I just camping in the street in my hometown in Irvine. Like I just every day, like, like did what I could to, to make the vote happen, like handing out Reverend Stewart's blue books and everything else. <laughs> because, and like, it's kind of funny to think like, would I like have followed this path? Like becoming a games journalist, like going into game development, continuing to write about games, going back and dealing with like the independence referendum, even now being politically involved. If I hadn't, Started buying Amsterdam action when I did. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting because like obviously this this comes up on the show a lot because I've spoken to people that have worked for those magazines and people that have come up through you know because it was such a, a formative thing. I think largely because back then you know video games were a super niche thing, and to discover these magazines, it wasn't just this is funny and this is good. It was like, oh, these are these are my people. This is, you know, it's your way of becoming part of the community. And, you know, that, that's super intoxicating. That's everyone discovering their favorite movies and favorite bands and stuff. They're, it's building your your identity and finding your, your people, so to speak. And I think that's, you know, it's obviously much rarer now because everything is so um, stratified and stuff. But I think that's, that's hugely important, this idea of forming a sense of, of community. So... Like as a kid, did you did you feel that? Like, did you have kind of people around you that were interested in games, or were you, was it something you kind of kept secret in a sense, or felt like other, or or knew that was quite nerdy? 
I mean, I knew it was nerdy, do you know what I mean? And I never really had, like, definitely as a kid and probably as a young teen as well, like a really close group of friends. And I think that it's funny because, like, kids are just, it's something we something people talk about, but kids are mean, you know? Like, kids are, doesn't even if you're friends with people as a kid, like, there's always sniping and there's always yeah. talking around people's backs and there's everything else. So it's, I think it's hard. And I, when I think back as a kid, like, I, I imagine that very few kids had this sense of that people were like their best friends that you could tell anyone anything maybe some people did have that do you know what i mean and i'm not trying to like say that i feel sad about that or anything but i definitely had friends i could play games with and, and i felt close to but i never had that like close like wolf pack or something do you know what i mean a friend yeah who was like you could share anything with and, and be who you truly were with at all times definitely as a as an um as a kid and as a young teen, as I got into my older teen years, that solidified. And as I, and I went to university, I made some of the best friends I've ever had. And well, let's like away from the kind of broader cultural context. Like, what what were the games? Like, were there were there games around this time that really spoke to you and really like that that kind of have have left an indelible mark, so to speak? Um, it's funny because like I always think about going back to the CPC and try to play games, but like I'm one of those people who's just like a voracious like like stuff laker there's so much culture constantly being produced that i i find it hard to just cram all into my head so going back is always a really big decision you know like i want to go back and look at this play this spend these hours like i spend something new going back to things but uh for me like a huge a huge huge game for the that era i'm gonna say before game boy the before game boy came along was definitely head over heels um if you know that game i don't know i've never heard of it okay head over heels is one of those isometric games very much in style ultimate uh, which was just which was what rare used to be called um or mm, try to think of there's a batman game that was made by the same developer actually whose name i'm forgetting the point in time but basically um you in an isometric world you're going around collecting objects and performing platforming tasks which are kind of difficult in isometric and avoiding enemies trying to progress through these worlds um which are basically very like almost metroidvania-esque maps without as clearly delineated doors and 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 paths okay in a sort of 3d space and head over heels was a really interesting one because Ah, oh, fuck, I wish I could remember the guy's name. John Rittman or something? It's, uh, it's very annoying, but the developer made this game, which is like a sort of a very strange, very British kind of uh, world where one creature is a little dog creature. They're both little dog creatures, and he uh, can jump high, and the other dog creature can run fast, and when you connect them together, they can jump high and run fast together, but they start at the beginning of the game in separate prisons on a sort of a prison planet, and your aim is to get them together. And the world was all very strange. There's like sort of like walking fish monsters. There's like a Dalek with Prince Charles's head that you have to ride on at one point to get across spikes. And the game is like really fascinating because it's designed absolutely peerlessly, in my memory at least, because you have these two characters, uh-huh. your initial. You have one goal at the beginning. It's just get them together. You get them together. You're immediately rewarded with this um, double-powered creature. And then it starts to put in these positions. We have to split them up and then get them back together because certain positions they're too tall for. Because when you stand at each other's heads, they're two blocks tall. Certain positions, you need a fast character. But there's all these sort of ways that it keeps uh, disassembling your understanding of the game and then putting it back together. 
And it's the first game that I can think of that I really put serious effort into completing. But to my problem, or to my you know shame rather, um, I never finished it because I remember that there was one screen that I couldn't pass. And I was sure at the time that it was a bug that I couldn't get past it. And I always think to myself, I wish I should, I should go back and should find out if it was just me being a kid or if I can act, if it actually was an error that I just couldn't get past this one screen because I was so close to the end. Like I could get all the way through the game other than the last world. And it still sticks in my craw, to be honest. I never finished it. So maybe that isn't every game I've finished for some point in the future. I don't know. It's uh, John Rittman is the guy's name who made it. John Rittman. So I was close. You were close. Yeah, you were close. Yeah. Um, so and so, how did how did your your interest progress? I mean, I'm assuming it would progress like like most people. You, if you're that invested into games, you just get the the latest things if you, if you're able to. So so, what what was next? Well, it's interesting because like so, I had the the CPC, and then so my dad was an engineer, um, working with Siemens because there used to be a lot of um. Uh, engineering companies in uh, the Irvine Valley, basically. And do you have brothers and uh, sisters? Just to I have a brother, that. yeah, my brother Christopher. And was he into games? Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Uh, he would probably hate me to say this, but it's something we always laugh about, is that on the Amstrad CPC, we never remember, we always remember we used to have this thing called Play School, because he was a lot younger than me at the time, four years younger than me. And uh, Play School was like the first beginning of, beginnings of edutainment. And there used to be a game that was just called crossing the road and basically it was like can you cross the road why no right and you would be see the the red or the green light do you know what i mean the or the, the green man or the okay okay red man, right and if it was like a green man hit yes he'd cross the road if you put no he'd go across but he would stop and he would go you can't cross now but he was obsessed with that game because he was only like you know two or something do you know what i mean and <laughs> We would just always, like, any time we talk about it, he'd always be like, remember crossing the road? Aye, total belter. Like, about <laughs> how good it was. Like. So, yeah, he liked games as well, but he was a wee bit younger. Do you know what I mean? We had enough of an age gap that we couldn't really play games together in a meaningful way. I'd always be better than him because he didn't have the dexterity yet. And if he was, like, playing a narrative game, like, say, I was very, I was impatient. I was not a good brother, do you know what I mean? I would get annoyed and want to pull the controller off him, do you know what I mean? And yeah, be like, yeah. oh, do it like this, do you know what I mean? I just wasn't, it wasn't, We as adults, we got on really well, do you know what I mean? We share a lot of uh, interests and we talk a lot, but he's a gamer and more sort of the FIFA championship manager kind of mould, okay. you know? Okay, sorry, uh, I interrupted, so your dad was an engineer? Yeah, my dad was an engineer, right, so uh, we used to have Americans would come over, do you know what I mean, to work from American factories and stuff, right? And um, off the back of that, um, we got a, a Game Boy from America because it was cheaper there, you know? Got it with Tetris and uh, Super Mario and that. So that was kind of like my beginning entry into uh, console games, you know, was was the Game Boy. And I'm assuming you would have been, like, aware of the kind of broader cultural context. You'd know what Mario was and stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, when I think about it, like, um, I can't really remember the... You know, you go back, I can't remember exactly when certain things happened, what timing things, but I remember thinking that The Wizard was like a mind-blowing film. And I remember at the end of the film when they show you Super Mario Brothers 3, I literally turned the whole family and went, 
that's Super Mario Brothers 3. I'd been like totally like so excited that I was seeing somebody play it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And remembering from the gate from the film when I would finally play it that you could duck on that white block. Yeah, to, yeah, like, classic. To get the, the warp whistle. To get the warp whistle, you know? So yeah, I mean I definitely was aware of those things, but I I just kind of like love the fact that and it's something which I'm like think that isn't I wouldn't say respected because that sounds like a chip on the shoulder, but I don't think that it's something that is that is uh, cared for enough. It definitely in like British culture, but in the wider culture as well, in that Britain was an island, you know, like at the time, and it was like creating its own culture yeah. in games. And I think that now people get so obsessed with the idea of like NES and all that other shit that just wasn't popular. I, I didn't care about it. Nobody I knew cared about it. Anyone who had an NES seemed like a wee rich kid that wasn't your pal. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're just like, it just, it just was a different world. And I think that like people forget now that, you know, magazines like, you know, the Zaps and all that, the ones I didn't read are Mean Machines and CVG and home computers with tapes and Amiga and everything else was a, was a whole culture. And people don't go back and look at those games because a lot of them are janky. But if you go back and play NES stuff now, and, and I do like a lot of it, it is really, really not much better than a lot of home computer stuff. Absolutely and American, not. Yeah, American guys who go, oh, the ZX Spectrum, it's really bad. You go back and you say, play any game like from the Famicom of that era and, and genuinely compare them. There's not that much of a difference between them. You yeah, know? I mean, you, you, there is a very obvious, just purely from this show, like there is a very obvious delineation between people in the UK and people in the rest of the world. Like the, especially in America, the the, the NES was just ubiquitous. Like it was like a thing yeah. that was hand delivered to every family at some time during the 80s. Um, whereas the, the rest of the world, mostly the UK, to be honest, it is, it is all like mad home computers and various forms of homebrew and, and piracy and just... The, the amount, the variety of different sort of types of games and experiences is is mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, there's so many games where somebody had an interesting idea and it didn't pan out, but there's sort of the kernel of that there. And I don't think that there's enough. I mean, obviously there are like websites online that they, they create this stuff, but I don't think that there's enough care taken over that history. Like I, I really, honestly, have disliked that when I've gone to. Um, you know, museum shows and stuff, maybe in the UK, even in the UK, they'll be like, well, here's Mario and, and here's Zelda because they think that's what people want to come and see when I think that there's such a richer history of these British game developers. Like, I mean, someone like um, Yak, who just put in Poly- Polybius, like, yesterday or something, like, yeah. I mean, he should be basically be, like, a national hero, even though he's a weirdo who like loves llamas or whatever like that's a guy who's like a uniquely british talent and i just feel like it hurts me when i think of these guys like getting by on what they can scrape together when like they should i mean that guy should i mean i i don't, I don't being a nationalist a scottish nationalist i don't agree with knighthoods but he should at least be offered one Do you <laughs> know what is, i mean i mean i i am as guilty as anyone else of this and like this is something that is happened through through the, my various chats with different people like i never had a home computer my first introduction to video games was the sega mass system and i pretty much had consoles all the way until i got a pc when i was a teenager and so just like chatting to various people uh people who may be slightly older than me t- telling me about home computer games that i've never heard of i'm like this sounds like this is insanity how can this have been a game back in the 80s this sounds like some mad avant-garde art project like um to give you a, a more concrete example, I spoke to um, 
Ian Cook uh, churches, you know, the, the band churches. And yes, he was talking about um, Pie Man and Pie Mania and Deus Ex Machina and all these sort of male creature games. Which t- And I genuinely, I was laughing, and that can't have been a thing. That sounds insane, like he was making it up. And a friend of mine was so angry that he that I hadn't heard of Mel Crager. He sent me Mel's book, and I read the book, and I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. And then I got Mel subsequently came on the show, and I talked to Mel for for an episode. And, like, his, he's, so, he's for, for this kind of brief five- to six-year window, if people were around and interested in games, he's like a, a, an icon. And for everybody else, he's just complete nobody. And it's just it's insane how much of that is just completely forgotten and how much bold, experimental, exciting ideas that there were that have kind of been missed. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, I mean, I mean I'm talking about game here, but it is a, a matter of, like, identity and everything because, like, as I've... I was very young at the time, so I'm talking these games, like, but I really wasn't, like... Like, I wasn't really old enough to understand a lot of that stuff. You know, I was just about old enough to read magazines and old enough to, like, play games, but not enough to get them on any truly deeper level. So I wasn't probably picking, thinking, Mel Croucher, I got to try this weird game where you play a tape and Sean Pertwee's in it. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, but, and as I've grown, as I'm older, obviously I feel like I was there, I lived through it. So I have become obsessed with going back to the things that I didn't see. So I, you know, I have gone back to the NES and the Famicom and, and other things like that. And that, those are more my, I'm, you know, more interested in like exploring Japanese games and things like that. that I didn't experience at the time, but I, I think to some extent it is something that, okay, I'm not doing it, but you know, to some extent I should believe that these things should be celebrated far more than they are. And it is just a, a kind of a kind of a classic kind of, you know, British way of being, which is that people just don't see the value in what they've they've done or what they created because it's not popular now. Yeah, you know? no, I, I think that is definitely it. it's the fact that they're not that their legacy hasn't continued. So it's not like you sort of dip back. It's not like this grand story like a Mario or a Zelda where you can trace back the lineage and so like well the latest zelda say i'll play the original zelda that's that it keeps it fresh in people's minds that you don't have that with a lot of the, the no, I, i'm not sure to what extent yeah it's not even like a lack of like foresight as well by some of these people as well because i think of like a company like psychosis or like um dma design who like i mean at the time they put out lemmings right and lemmings was as big as a game can get it was ported to like everything right everyone knew what lemmings was i think there was probably like a lemmings like single on the charts and everything and then what happened to psychosis i guess they got bought by sony and just don't really exist and then there's some sort of half-assed shadow the beasts game getting made and i don't even has it even come out it Did came it out yeah out? it came out months ago it wasn't it wasn't great. months ago see like ex- like like that where it's like like even when people like go back to the history they don't have any like um, belief in it because i do remember playing that shadow of the beast demo at uh e3 and being like oh it's just like a sort of a side-scrolling god of war they've discovered and i don't even like shadow of the beast but i'm trying like it's like something that i know what it was why people liked it and you're they're not even understanding that they're just like uh here's a brand like let's just, like a syndicate put out by by ea where they were like uh here's a brand let's just shove it out like there's yeah. so much amazing stuff that was made in the uk that just isn't looked back at and allowed to flourish perhaps because people sold their companies and they didn't think about the future in that way and perhaps because just people don't give a shit about it you know yeah i mean a lot of it is going to be like licenses and ips as well there's so much so much of it has been owned and re-owned and bought and 
swapped and yeah. companies been bought out like keeping track of any of that stuff so oh well we own we own the name so let's just use that name and make something based on it yeah it's a bummer it is it's an absolute bummer um so well let's get back to more positive things then so as you you're growing older you're you're a teenager like well how was the game boy we never really got to the game boy we got totally sidetracked i love the game boy the game boy is one of those systems where like people um don't i feel like don't really give it the respect that it deserves because they sort of view it as janky or nes games just on a handheld and it obviously like i feel that people don't go back to it and look at it uh, as fondly as they should i know that uh jeremy parish the american uh sort of game historian writer guy is doing a whole series with the game boy right now and he's really harsh on it i think he really really is basically like this is bad this one's bad but i played so many games on the game boy that i was just like really really impressed by not least um konami's output i think konami's output on the uh, game boys is, is incredible actually their castlevania 2 belmont's revenge for the game boy has an incredible soundtrack and is a, a kind of the platonic ideal i think of an of that era of castlevania they put a tiny tunes game that is super amazing um there's just a lot of like it's another system where uh a lot of developers put a lot of weird shit out on it so for example I, I, know I can't be 100% sure, but I think as a British developer, they put together a Bill & Ted's game for the Game Boy called Bill & Ted's Excellent Adventure. Okay. And it's kind of like an amazing um, kind of Chucky Egg almost style uh, platform game, single screen platformer game. There's the item of being super amazing. Um, and it's one of those things, again, it's just like kind of lost to the sands of time because people don't show as much interest in those weird experiments um, compared to the big hitters that is a, that is a, a very obscure poll i'd be surprised if anyone ever brought that game up on another show but i mean a lot of that though was just surely i mean as, as much as you remember that as being like this kind of cool clever little niche title it was probably as much a kind of pure exercise in commerce as, as a lot of the modern cash-ins of old british titles you know it's just we've got this name we've got an idea for a game let's just mash them together and see if it works but clearly it, it worked in that case oh yeah i mean i think it's like it's one of those things right where um it's a matter of the thing about this era is that publishers just wanted product right and they didn't care about you know the metrics or exactly where the thing was going to be they would just be like put a bill and ted a uh, platformer together do you know what i mean so you get a lot of like i mean I can't pretend there's not a lot of rank garbage put out in the name of um, licenses. Most famously, pretty much everything THQ put out for the entire <laughs> 90s is just the worst. But sometimes people are like, oh, no one's paying attention, so I'll do something interesting or I'll make something that is like polished and good. And I remember that that um, Bill and Ted game being like in the, you know, the the milieu of a British designed single screen platformer and it was really good, you know? Um, but yeah, um, I went through the Game Boy. So that was like uh, a system that kind of like, they really hooked me into, I would say that's what sort of started my interest in weird um, and or polished Japanese video games, much more so than like the NES or the Super Nintendo or whatever we go on, because you have to remember as well that, I didn't have a Super Nintendo or a Mega Drive because those systems were expensive and cartridge expensive. What immediately happened was we continued the path from Amstrad CPC to 
uh, PC because I had this sort of like a almost like a summit with my dad where I was like, look, I really want a new game system. Could I get some Nintendo? And he was like, look, it's expensive. The games are expensive. It doesn't offer us anything else other than being a game system. Yeah. Why don't you get a PC, right? And I remember being like, another computer, like Mario, all that stuff. It's like, that's where the action is, right? And he was like, well, I'll tell you what. I'll take you over to my friends and you'll show you some of the games on the PC. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So I remember going around and seeing um, Wolfenstein 3D and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis uh, one after another, right? And the colors and the smooth movement and the adventuring, it was like my, my, my tiny brain exploded. I was like, that... What is this from Nintendo? Complete garbage by comparison. <laughs> Why would I want that, right? So I was completely sold after that. And my dad was really happy because he was like, well, I can just copy games. Just copy yeah, yeah. the copies, right? That doesn't worry about how much the games are. And uh, we bought, uh, again, I pushed my dad a little bit. We got the Amstrad 386DX with uh, 40 megahertz of power <laughs> and a 40 megabyte hard drive and a sound blaster and everything and we got we got that my dad started copying floppies at an intense rate and did he uh, play games did your parents play games at all so it's funny because one of the big games that that really really hooked me at that time uh and i was i would say the first game that i was so addicted to that i was thinking about it during school was civilization and the reason we had a copy of Civilization was my dad had got sent a copy of it, a copied floppies with a whole printed full copied manual by, I guess, a, another friend, a friend in Germany, I think, like another a co-worker from Germany. Okay. And that came and he was like, I'm not really that bothered. And I played that to absolute death. But when I think of my family playing games together, I have such fond memories of um, playing the Amsterdam CPC with my whole family. Because we had this one, I guess when we got it, we got a bunch of Amsoft tapes, which would have been the Amstrad company's tapes that they just sent out. So there was Roland on the Ropes, which famously people didn't think was very good, but I played quite a lot of. We had one that was a was an, um, uh, just a fruit machine, just fruit machine simulator or something, right? Okay. And me, my dad, my mom, my nana, we would all sit and try and high score it. Do you know what I mean? Just play it to get the highest score till you ran out of money and i can remember my dad opening the the tape insert because it could show you what all of the um what the roles were what was on all the roles of the fruit machine do you know what i mean and like nudging it just right so you could get the most points and all that um so yeah my parents played tetris or whatever and they played uh they played my memories of that but never been big gamers as such although my mum did get a ds for brain training and dogs and all that but hasn't really looked at it in a long time she ever once in a while she'll mention oh i think maybe our wee dog at dogs was called lucy she'd be like oh lucy must be covered in fleas by now or something <laughs> like that starving and just because she never opens it anymore but i imagine if yeah. it did that that'd be awful if you went back years later and there's just like a carcass because she mm. hadn't left it in that way that animal crossing villages kind of degrade over time well, they don't degrade. They just leave town. Yeah, but then you get bugs everywhere. It's, it's just depressing. 
Oh, the, the village definitely de- de- degrades. Apparently, with the most recent update, um, they fixed it. So if you come back after a long time, they've given your town a, a clean to try and draw you back in. You just got this. So you got this PC from your dad's bit, and you had all these kind of games, and you're obsessed with civilization. Um, so you were talking about like friends. You know, you didn't have this super tight knit group of friends. So. Do you think, not it's because you had a PC, but you think that played a part of it? Like, did you, I can't imagine there were many other kids that were playing kind of Fate of Atlantis or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that's why I would say that it took until I was an older teen and PCs became more of a, more of a, a thing that a lot of people had that it, that it really sort of became like more of a, a shared experience. I would sort of put it down to the mid, about the mid 90s, um, I'm sorry, mid to well, late nineties actually. Really, when I get down to it, when uh, you know, after you know, games like uh, Duke Nukem and, and Quake and things like that had become like a big deal, like yeah. and accelerator graphics cards, like 3D FX and stuff, that starts coming an important thing. And the internet, really, obviously, as well. Like, that was the thing that yeah. everyone got. The and the internet, for. yeah. So basically, like once people start getting like modems, I think I must have had. Uh, which I don't remember exactly when, but it must have been late 90s. I got a 28.8K baud modem and started, you know, waiting every day till 6 p.m. so I could collect my emails. Um, <laughs> I definitely got the sense that, like, more people were, like, involved in the PC gaming and I was closer with friends at school and we would do things like, you know, play Duke Nukem 3D online or or whatever, you know, like, that, um, the, yeah, those things sort of opened up, you know? And did you have, like you know you said the impact all these early video game magazines had on you like did you have it in your head that that was something you'd like to do or like to attempt like did you have any idea of what you what you were hoping to do i guess as you got older yeah so this is one of those things where it's like when i look back at my path it's like if i had been more sure of myself my path would be very different but would i be any happier than i am now because I just don't know I'd have got to the same places, you yeah. know. Because when I was a kid, I was I all I wanted to be was a video games journalist. That's really that genuinely is, is true. Like I just wanted to work a future on, you know, one of their magazines. And um I ultimately would go on to write for Edge extensively, um, which is to be honest to me, kind of a sore point because almost no one knows that because they never had bylines the whole time i wrote for them but there's certain issues where i look at them I'm like oh, i wrote most of this blooming issue yeah i mean when did <laughs> but, they start doing that like two or three years ago yeah i think i have one byline in edge ultimately because i haven't written for them in a long time because i've been um invested in other things obviously but i thought i wasn't gonna be a freelancer i was gonna go down to bath and live there and work do you know what i mean yeah and but as I was growing up, I think a lot of people around me got the sense that because I was had computers and I was always into computers, that I would work in computers somehow. Do you know what I mean? Be a programmer, be be something technical because that's what people. It's one of the things that I think about a lot is that. I think it's probably even true now. The idea that people say you gotta go to university. Do you know what I mean? You gotta go to university and you got to do. Uh, vocational thing almost at university do you know what i mean because yeah. that's going to set you up for a job i think in the last years people realized that going to university, everyone goes to university so there's no guarantee of a job at the end of university so just go to university and do something that's interesting to you so i think i should have been more sure of myself and gone to university and did english or or something like that that would have like opened me up a little bit more to the world mm-hmm. instead 
I kind of got swept along in career guides and everything else and thought, well, I should go into programming and be a developer of that sort. Um, speaking of that sort of period as well, like especially talking about the music and being interested in that side of things, like for me, um, before I went to university, uh, I, I pretty much just gave up on video games. I was in a band and I sold all of my consoles and kind of just had nothing to do with games basically for a good couple of years until emulation happened and then this sort of pulled me all back in like did you ever have a period where you kind of left uh games for a while or kind of set it aside or has it just been always uh, an interest well that's the thing is like it's always been a peripheral interest but i would definitely say that for my even though i was at you know a university doing essentially a games course for the for the second half of my university career um it wasn't a culture that I engaged with on a meaningful way or I played a lot of games. Like, I literally did, like, almost play nothing probably for my whole um, university career other than maybe a, a, a the odd game at weekends because there just wasn't time or the inclination because there was obviously, like, you know, clubbing and friends and all that sort of thing to do instead. Absolutely. And and so, like, yeah, like, the, the, the game of... The game of GoldenEye before you go out for drinking or whatever became sort of my gaming experience. Like I think a lot of people at university that that like definitely of my era, that's kind of what it came down to. Like you moved on a little bit and you explored more things, and there was usually something that would draw you back in. And like um, for me, obviously, like um, I was still interested in games. It just it wasn't a major factor of my life it was more like a 20 percent thing rather than the 60 percent it might have been before you know yeah but were you still thinking about like writing about games for this whole period like when did that shift when did you start to take that like more seriously well that's that's like kind of the big other second next stage of my life which was um um that although games and golden everything wasn't a huge part of my life like um the Neo Geo Pocket Color came out. Now, okay. I don't know if you've ever had one or any interest in, in it. No, I've seen one. A friend of mine had one. I've never owned one. The Neo Geo Pocket Color came out, right? And as a fan, even then, of like all the Japanese things, it was just such a weird kind of little creature. And I was always interested in it sort of peripherally. But then one day online, I discovered, and it was at, at Glasgow University Computing Lab, and I remember being there, seeing that, it was being closed out at some store. You get the handheld for 35 quid. All the games were about 10 quids, right? And I had probably, you know, 60 quid spare or something, right? And I thought, hmm, let's go for it, you know? So That's I picked a good it deal, up. to be fair. Oh, it was good. It was a good deal, right? So I picked it up in a few games. And I was really, really impressed because if you don't know much about the, the Neo Geo Pocket Color, is that it's made by SNK, famously of uh, the Neo Geo. So they used to make these game systems are about 600 quid and the games are 200 quid each, right? Yep. And then that level of care was put into this wee handheld system. So it has this incredible clicky stick. People always reference clicky stick, but it makes playing fighting games like, um, they, you know, their uh, King of Fighters. And they did an amazing SNK versus Capcom game called Match the Millennium. Absolutely a pleasure, even with only two buttons. And in fact, I would probably say that I have some favorite fighting games, but one of them is definitely SNK versus Capcom. A match of the millennium on the Neo Geo Pocket Color. It's one of the one of the most like pleasant experiences I can think of, and um, 
I became really into this system. But obviously, no one else gives no one else in Glasgow in two thousand and two or whatever gives a shit about this, right? So I went online and I found a forum that still exists to this day, actually. Um, that is literally like we'll use as probably one of the oldest forum softwares ever. It's literally a single page, okay. like not like a not like a roll mock or something where you have all these different posts or anything. It's like the posts just go on the page and you scroll off the bottom of the page. Um, and this might sound insane, but I have met like easily like one of my all time best friends on that uh, for multiple best friends actually uh, on that forum. Um, including um, Brandon Sheffield, who you would know as uh, currently running the games company Necro Necrosoft, but he was weirdly. He I was become... meant to be speaking to Brandon yesterday, but he he had something to come up, so we've rescheduled it. That's an odd. Well, bit of that's timing. good because I absolutely one hundred percent have to snipe at least two of the games he's going to mention. <laughs> okay. Please let me do because it'd be really <laughs> funny. Um, so yeah, we met. Uh, or we didn't meet actually. We 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 sort of met online. So wait wait, wait. what was the what was the forum? Uh, uh, it's just called uh, SNG sorry SNGP. So it was like off of a fan site for the New Drew Pocket. So Sector NGP. So Sector New Drew Pocket. Okay. Uh, you could probably still find it online, but it's like so dead and so private now that like I can't imagine anyone not from there posting on it. There's like seven people who still post. I never really post anymore, but like uh, I still go back to it like every week or so just to see if anyone said anything. Okay. <laughs> but. Uh, the point being is that we sort of bonded over this new Pocket color, and he started the website with another close friend of mine, uh, Vincent Diamante. He would go on to do uh, music for Flower, most famously, and works at that game company. Okay. Called Insert Credit, which was kind of, I would say personally, that it was the beginnings of, as coined by Keenan Gillen, new games journalism. Okay. Because. Uh, although he would most famously talk of a particular article, which is the name is too offensive for me to name here. I know exactly um, the one you mean. Uh, there, there was a lot of articles written into credit by Brandon, uh, Tim Rogers, uh, um, other people that were in that milieu of experiential uh, writing, and I that was the second time my brain exploded. Do you know what I mean? Here were my sort of like people, you know, a little older than me in some cases, but roughly my contemporaries who were writing the same way that maybe Stuart Campbell did, writing exactly what they wanted to write and not giving a shit what people thought of it. Even if people were like, this isn't good writing, this is just garbage, this is over long, this isn't telling me about graphics and sound, those sort of things. And so I kind of fell into that crew because I was like lucky enough that, Brandon would start to like me and, and like my writing that I was able to write multiple, deeply, probably now embarrassing articles for insert credits. And um, just obviously for no money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, we would, uh, that's became sort of my, the, the main thing that I cared about towards the end of my university career was writing these articles. And it was something that I was, this was before Twitter, this was before Facebook even. So it was hard to get those things out. It was still like the type of day you'd wake up in the morning. If you went on the internet, you would like go to different front pages, which is insane to me now. Yes, ridiculous. Um, but um, you managed to get some notoriety off of that. So I felt that I was like building on, uh, building myself and becoming part of this thing. And, and that's where, that's how I, when I left university, I, I moved to Canada um started to, you know, with my access to games from uh, North America because they'd come out earlier than Britain at the time. 
because um, no one was downloading games back then, I was able to start writing articles for uh, Eurogamer, and then that would turn into writing articles for Edge and Rock Paper Shotgun and so on. Um, so going back to that, so so you're in Canada. So what were you what were you writing about? Like, I mean, I'm assuming once you start writing these kind of articles, you want to get more games and more machines and stuff. So, or, or did that not? happened were you just writing about neo geo or were you just writing about pc or well i mean that's the thing is like that's the thing is like as i as I, from the neo geo that's where everything started to come off and again because of the community right so you so i'm talking to brand and i'm talking to like other people like that and you know obviously i hear this game is like really weird oh this game is really interesting you know yeah um and it, it drives me to start buying more systems and and like playing more games you know like i think that when i was in even towards the end of so my university i started to get back into it i bought a saturn for example so that's well at a date by then but i'm playing like panzer dragoon and stuff like that and exploding like these slightly odder sega games from that era you know i started to play more playstation because i'm more interested you know i pick up a ps2 with uh prince of persia sands of time which is still quite amazing to think how much of the modern era that game ultimately spawned oh it's amazing um and um yeah stuff like that so i start to get more into those those things you know and i moved to canada and i start to build my collection again because i lost my collection in the move you know i you know get a gamecube i get a you know a ps2 then we start moving on to xbox 360 you know so and uh yeah trying to discover these odd for me it became a much more about discovering these hidden gems these weirder games because so inspired by my friends like uh the two brandons i would call them you know brandon sheffield and brandon boyer who i consider like you know some of my closest friends and and very inspirational and they're, they're like enthusiasm and interest in different in, in different kinds of games more than just your you know your shooters and your um you know whatever you know yeah i mean you said you wanted to, to to snipe brandon so was there a specific game that you had in mind oh so i have to snipe the the two games that we play together every time we're together right um i can snipe three but i'm gonna let him have Landmaker. when he comes on you tell him matthew let you have Landmaker. <laughs> <laughs> but um so whenever we meet we play two fighting games. That's our that's our group of friends. Like people cycle in and out a little bit, um, but it's definitely usually me, uh, Brandon, um, and Vincent, and we always always play uh, the fighting game Ask It 100 Burning Fist Limited, and another one called um, Garadin Breakblow Fist or Twist. And they're you have to say the names are... of both of those again because you said them too quickly, and oh, yeah. I hadn't heard of either of them. Okay, so the games are called Aska 120% Burning Fest Limited. Okay. And the other one is called Garuden, so G-A-R-O-U-D-E-N, Break Blow, Fest or Twist. Okay. And where, where can one see and play these games? Okay, one is on Saturn and one is on PS2. They're both Japan only, obviously. Um, and uh, the amazing thing about them is, is that so you play a fighting game, right? Yeah. And playing a Street Fighter, you got your special moves and you got your blocks, right? Maybe if you're playing like Street Fighter 3 or something, you got your patties, right? So the thing about Ask 100% is it's a 2D fighting game in where every single attack, 
if timed correctly, clashes with every other attack, right? Okay. So, you know that amazing um, shot, that amazing film of of Daigo parrying every single hit from a kick or whatever in Street Fighter 3? Yeah, the, seen this the, movie, right? the Evo tournament of like 2009 or something. Right? Everyone, everyone loses their shit, It's right? amazing. Any, any game of Ask Hunter percent is that times a million. You're just constantly <laughs> punching to block stuff. So they do a kick. You kick, you punch, you block it, right? So certain characters will do multi-hit combos. But if you play well, you can block it all. You can be like, punch, 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 to block every hit because you're timing it correctly. But because every attack clashes and every single, like, um, a special move, every character has the same special move movements, it's usually like down, down, B, like uh, towards B, back B, and, and uh, like, I'm um, sorry, uh, dragon, not dragon punch, um, Hadouken forward, Hadouken back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can pick up very quickly, and clashing means you're always kind of competitive because you can just like spam attacks to try and survive something and hope that it works out. And it is never not, to me, one of the greatest fighting games ever made. There is balancing issues, um, but it's fantastic. And the other game... Egaradin is this amazingly ugly 3D fighter. It's based on a manga, I think, where every character is utterly, horrifically ugly man. Like, they have so many muscles over muscles. <laughs> they just, like, look totally foul. And the way this game works is not that every attack clashes. Every attack just goes through every attack. So you just basically walk two guys up to each other and just hammer the buttons as much as possible, trying to destroy the other guy. And every single body part can be damaged. So you can like punch a guy so his like spine breaks, but you'll just keep fighting. Like, and you're just <laughs> so you're slamming all these buttons, these ugly characters punching each other. And then the other amazing thing about this game is, is that. It has one health bar that you share. And as your health bar gets knocked back, you unlock your specials. So if you're down on health, you unlock your special three. But you don't necessarily know how to pull that off. So you usually just hammer buttons randomly trying to make it happen. And then you'll be like, oh, no, that was a counter move. Only if he kicked me, I could use that. So you'll whiff it. And that's super hilarious. <laughs> and the best, like, the best thing is, is that you will literally, to win a ma ma match, you can often sometimes punch people so hard that their ghost flies out of their face. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Um, it's I, one of those things where it's like, I made sure I have a copy of both and a Saturn and a PS2 that's chipped to hand at all times just in case I ever need to play them. <laughs> this, th th Those are both games, I think, where your description of them are too good for me to look them up because I know I'm going to be disappointed with whatever I, I might see. Um, but yeah, those are almost 100% games that Brandon Sheffield would have uh, <laughs> talked about. I sniped them. Um, we're going to take. I'm going to take a brief aside, Matthew, for some uh, relatively quick fire questions, and then we'll come back sure. around and close it up. Uh, so, Matthew, um, if you had to play a game against death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Against death for my own mortal soul. Yeah, like seven style bogus journey. <laughs> uh, it's gonna have to be a card game Android Netrunner because it's the only game which I consider myself fairly good at, probably. Like, and the thing is that death, we'd have to discuss exactly what type of decks he was building because, okay. yeah, he could probably destroy me no matter what with the current meta. <laughs> So if you went for like a vintage, like you have to play a certain year's meta, then you'd be fine. 
Yeah, maybe if maybe if I was like positioning myself like exactly right, it would work out, you know. Or if we had like a best of tournament or something, like if we just did like maybe best of three, maybe I can make it pull it out. Do you know what I mean? Fair enough. Um, has there ever been a game that has kind of consumed your life to the point where you've had to uninstall it and delete it from your system? I never would say that I had to get rid of it, but I definitely had to like give up on Animal Crossing New Leaf. I did play it for like literally 150 hours and I spent a lot of time thinking about managing my little townsfolk and when I was going to build the next improvement. Which one is like, New Leaf? Which system is that on? 3DS. It's the 3DS, 3DS one. one. I literally lay in bed at nights for hours looking at the ceiling thinking, well, if that horse moves out, well, I can definitely place Stonehenge there and then I'll have enough money left over to... It was it was kind of sick by the end of it, so <laughs> I did have to stop, you know? That's probably for the best. Um, and well, the funny thing is, the only reason I stopped was because a bloody horse did move in and ruin all my pathways. <laughs> I was so annoyed at that horse. I wrote him so many fucking hate mail letters and just wouldn't leave town. I just got annoyed and stopped playing. Um, we, we just touched on this briefly a second ago, but uh, are you a competitive gamer and do you, have you ever been locked in any uh, long-term high score battles? I mean, I do. I like competitive gameplay, but I, I'm having played in Netrunner for years now, like in the competitive scene, I'm very much against the bravado and um, kind of testosterone of it on some level. Like my opinion is that it should always be fun. We're always just playing a game. It's just a game, guys, which is kind of a lame refrain really that i um i love the experience of competition i love the highs of winning and the i obviously hate the lows of losing but i hate when it gets such a big deal that people can't see beyond it like they get really snipey and unpleasant and yeah. i've seen that too many times in fighting games and everything else that um i would try to consider myself a good natured competitive player i love competition but i don't love the things that those can engender okay um has there, like, given the the range of uh, of emotions video games are potentially able to instill in you, uh, comedy tends to be the 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 rarest. So, Matthew, what games have really made you laugh? Ah, oh, that's an interesting one, because I think I was thinking about that when you sent me the questions that I might be asked, and I'm gonna go for another little side one here, but Bangayo for the Dreamcast. Um, by Treasure has some of the funniest cutscenes, just completely random and bizarre. The translation is amazing. I remember having the that for my Dreamcast, and yeah, it's absolutely one of my my favorites. And the game is absolutely the tits as well. So oh, it's incredible! It's incredible. Um, yeah, I feel like I've missed one of those eight, but I can't remember what it is. So that's fine. No, it's gone um so so what kind of i i don't know like when you did when you sort of started becoming essentially like a professional um video game journalist like was it as you expected it to be like did you i mean aside from the kind of the constant fear of you know if you're working freelance where's the next gig coming from did, did it live up to your expectations yeah i mean i, I it hasn't it hasn't do you know what i mean like there's the things that you sort of like see and the things you don't like what it has given me obviously when i talk about my, my friends is it has given me like again 
some of the best friends I've ever had. Do you know what I mean? Like the community that I saw in those magazines as a kid of friends, you know, having fun writing, that's ultimately what I got. But I think the realities of it, um, maybe that I didn't see them coming. And that's a, I mean, I had it better than anyone does nowadays, right? I have to be honest, which say that I've more or less because I still sometimes like to do some writing. I'm, I've definitely burned bridges now by being offered such a pittance to write or to do uh, genuinely important, like I say important, but genuine work yeah. for people that I think that the market's in a really bad place just now for that because you're not going to get good writers anymore because there's just not something to support them, uh, particularly in terms of freelance. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, in terms of the things that I didn't see coming, I didn't see how like little publishers and respect you as a writer they just they <laughs> think that you are all they genuinely believe that every game journalist is a fan at heart not a journalist you know what i mean and that's always hard to deal with you know and going to things like e3 and being treated like scum and sheep do you know what i mean but then also looking at the other people around you and going these people are scum and sheep like, <laughs> like why do i think i'm so much better like because i just like put care into my work and don't ask how, what the frame rate is you know like like, I understand how people had, had, had a poor opinion of games journalists, but also it made me sad when you try and do good work in that field, you yeah. know? Um, so, yeah, I think I didn't understand how little other people cared about the work, you know? like yeah. And how that made me work harder. But at the same time, I've become aware that nowadays it's impossible to care about the work because the money's too low, the hours are too long. People don't want good work. Clickbait's where it's at. Like, I've been genuinely disturbed by the way in which, like, even the big you know, uh, uh, blogs and everything now, like they know that it makes more sense for them to pump out 40 stories on Overwatch now, and it used to be Minecraft, than it does to, you know, do an interesting story. And they try, they have their prestige stories, Polygon and definitely Kotaku, which I was never, he was a terrible, not a fan of at all for a long time, try to have their odd prestige story and their, their you know, their niche journalists. But it's just there's no value in it for them really yeah you know it's no, kind of it's, sad it is it's tricky it's it's a tricky thing because because it is like the clickbait stuff it just it literally just works better like if you it, it, as as a company that that's what you do to make money that's kind of how it works and it's it's a it's a really uncomfortable proposition to say we can pay you loads of money and we can write really good stuff and we probably won't be able to get the kind of advertising behind it to, to pay for any of that basically like um, at e3 this year i know that like people will be being paid like hourly rate minimum wage to be on that floor to essentially like like pick up press packs and stuff that then go back to other donkeys in a office also paying minimum wage just pump out headlines you know here's some screenshots here's some this do you know what i mean like or rent a quotes you know like and that's very depressing like it's it's hard it's hard for me to think that like that like even if i had you know been not been more since i had just gone into the the career of being like a a staffer somewhere if i had made the decision to be freelance the way that that probably i wouldn't have a job now you know yeah no it's it's insane it's insane well we, we keep we keep rushing to these dark places matthew so let's go somewhere more positive <laughs> um like during this time though like you know this is an exciting time you you get into write about games like what kind of games from this period kind of stand out for you as being really important for kind of your your understanding or the things that had an impact on you 
because it's a rich time like this kind of period this kind of the kind of i actually i'm I'm not even certain what time period i'm thinking of but just the last 16 years basically yeah i mean i would say that we're again it's hard not to get dark honestly because (laughs) what has been hugely influential on me obviously becoming an independent game developer and everything is was the rise of the indies right and it wasn't just about being a get rich quick scheme the same way that maybe bedroom coders of the 80s was seen as being. It was that people were coming out and they're making amazing work, right? That they cared about, right? You know, yeah. you look at people like, you know, like Vlambeer and everyone else, and you see that they are busting their asses to make the best possible product. And how varied those ideas were. It's like going back to those days of bedroom coders where you're thinking like, you know, people are making narrative games. People are thinking purely mechanical games. People are making text adventures again well not well they are making text adventures that's always been its own thing i guess i more mean like the choose your own adventure type twin yeah, games yeah. all of those things are being are being done and people were succeeding at it and then what's also happened is that people are now no longer really succeeding at it it's really a lot harder because of you have to appeal to streamers and stuff and getting the word out there and steam is absolutely swamped so it's become a lot more difficult for people but I see it's even now when people are given the chance to to make the things, make art, honestly, they make amazing stuff. Like I just recently have been playing um, Loot Rascals, um, which is made by uh, Holoponds with Ricky Haggett. And they had the artist Swatpaz, who I'm a tremendously huge fan of, yep. do all the art, art for and do the videos and stuff. And that's a perfect example of a game that's very pure and mechanical and thought, but it's also like artistic and fun and there's stuff like that which it's just like i look at that and i think it's so great that those things can be made like i hope that these things can continue to be produced or even like you know they are my friends like a game like n plus plus which people go well it's a sequel but you look at how much love and care and attention is put into producing a literally a perfect object for what it is or video ball which wasn't successful made by Again, my friend Tim Rogers, like, again, it feels like I'm just calling out a lot of friend names here, but those are the things that inspire me is that people that I know who care about the, the things that they produce yeah. and being given the chance to produce those things and the, the sort of the Steam market kind of crash and the difficulty of getting your game out there and discoverability and, and games being more than just, um, you know, Minecraft alikes or Stardew Valley alikes or Hearthstone alikes, things like that. That's something which has to be protected and cared for. And it's like, I really hope that we can do that, you know, that as a culture and as a community and as publishers and everything, that's something that can be continued to allow to flourish and live and not become something like independent cinema, where the average person will never see an indie film, even though it just get it will be thrown up on fucking Netflix. They're not going to watch it. Do you know what I mean? So like, and if you sell Netflix, you're over the moon because you got your money back. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I want something healthier than that. And I'm not sure that I see it at this point in time. And that's something which I worry about and I care about and I think about a lot. It's so hard though. Like, I mean, I think about this all the time because like in games and, and in, in film, especially and, uh, and in music to an extent, I'd say like most of the stuff, not most of the stuff, that's probably an exaggeration, but certainly let's say compar- comparably to like the 80s or 90s there's so much good stuff being made like so much like th- mm-hmm. that just isn't seen that is is 
is missed. Like I've seen a, a bunch of indie films over the past year that if I had watched like in the 80s or 90s, they would have been big hits. They would have been really popular. Everyone would have would have loved them. But now they just they don't exist. Just like fun, like and I don't mean like art films in the sense of like you know some kind of ten hour Russian uh, existential story. I mean like really schlocky popcorn ideas. Like there was a movie came out last year called um, uh, Final Girls. Did you see Final Girls? I did, yes. Yeah, well, okay, well, that's maybe a bad example. But, like, I love that film, and it's such a, a fun populist idea, and it was done with a lot of care, and just, you know, nobody really saw it, obviously, except for you, which is completely ruining my point. But you know what I mean? Like, but it's how, how do you how do you frame that? You have that? to remember, though, that I am, a, I am genuinely a stuff liker. I'm yeah. very invested in indie cinema. I'm very invested in indie music. I'm very invested in indie games. So there's a good chance that if you're going to name something, I probably have seen it. <laughs> but that, I mean, the, the, the point of that is that, that, that I, I, similar to you, like I have a, a huge interest in, in things. So I, I, I seek these out. But for people who aren't doing that, it's hard. Like, how do you find, yeah. uh, introduce those to people? Like, especially now there's no TV there's just this one giant tube that everything comes down. You know, you can't, it's like watching a movie drone on a Sunday night or something like that's where I got a lot of my, my interest and love of, of kind of independent cinemas because there was a time slot. You watch TV on this channel at this time and you probably see something cool and weird, which is, you know, it's yeah. harder to, to, you know, cultivate that kind of culture anymore. I just think it's a matter over game it's a matter of game developers have to be thinking how do they make sure they value the player's time and their wallet, which is not just uh, selling games cheap. It's, it's also about offering them a value proposition that makes sense and, you know, making sure the game doesn't outstay its welcome or, or add, but it's also a matter of as a, you know, I said culture in the community, we need to work out how do we fix discoverability? I think what steam is doing is complete garbage. And I genuinely wish anyone else Anyone else had the reins other than than Steam and Valve on trying to help discoverability issues because metrics are just not going to cut it. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of, of all this stuff, like what prompted you to kind of make the shift into development yourself? Well, for me, it's a, a lot of it was that I could see the writing on the wall for games journalism, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have spent... And again, you know, this seems like the type of thing where it's like you could say it was big headed. But when you've played a lot of games and you think about them critically, you do start to see a lot about what makes them good or bad and understand the underlying design. And I wanted to explore if that was something that I was actually good at. So there's also that. But there's also the fact that I was living in Toronto. But I am living in Toronto. And... The culture there was of indies, right? So it started with Jess Mack and then Reagan and Mayer and then Cappy. And then being surrounded by these people and getting to know these people as friends and peers, I, as another situation became like, I became so impressed by what they were doing and their, their spirit and the things they're producing. Um, I mean, a game like a Sword and Sorcery um, EP is just such an incredible artistic work to me. And I think that seeing those things, seeing those people, it's like you want to be those people. Do you know what I mean? You want to be part of that, you know? Of course. And for me, it was that I wanted to start, like, pushing myself. Not just be who I was, which was, in my opinion, a good writer and 
and an insightful writer. It was to be a good designer and a good developer and a good person who worked that way. So I was tremendously lucky that I was able to start being involved in people's projects, first as a consultant, and then obviously working full time on sound shapes. And that's, you know, still one of my, you know, greatest memories is is being able to produce like a game that I consider to be like, you know, more than just a platformer. Yeah. You know, a piece of, you know, music, a piece of art, you know, like and, and to be an integral part of that in terms of level design and and um production and working with the artists and the engineers, like that's something which just like it's probably one of the best things I've ever done, you know, and 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 I think that that's like something that keeps me going forward is that like that I can do that. I can make that and I want to keep making those things. And I suppose that's why I do talk so darkly about the future of those type of projects, because like those are the ones which excite me, which interest me, which I've always cared about since I you know first picked up a Neo Geo Pocket, which, as we know, was a tremendous failure. <laughs> so <laughs> You're just naturally drawn to that. But, but like did you have like a bunch of ideas in mind when you made this switch because i can i can totally imagine how being in this kind of scene and having this love of games it, it, it's intoxicating of course you're going to want to get involved and especially because you have like you have the skills to do it essentially but did you have like a bunch of ideas that to run through or was it like okay i'm going to do this what kind of game do i want to make I, I mean, I have my ideas, obviously. You know, we always have our ideas, and there's big sky, blue sky ideas. And I, I definitely don't. I don't have any ideas about games. It's the one part of my life that I try and purposefully not have any ideas about in case I get drawn into it. It's the one thing I've got that I just I just enjoy. I just like playing games, and I don't think about anything else. I mean, obviously, I'm interested in it. I do this show. I'm interested in talking to... But that's more about the, the human experiences of them as opposed to, you know, the... The, the mechanics because that's the one well, thing i don't want to ruin for myself i think i think that's actually a very healthy way to be i think i've become a bit too familiar with um the games community at large which is very demanding and very um you should have done it this way do you know what i mean so i i tend to i would put it this way which is that i am wary of people who view themselves as game designers on some level without being game designers because what I learned going into it and I'm glad that I feel that I sort of came into it trying to think this way which is like game development is a collaborative process and it's also a matter of it's not the big ideas that matter really do you know what I mean like if you come into games thinking well I'm going to make this RPG or I'm going to make this game that does this thing it's so much more about knowing how to tweak this, how to make this feel good, how this level should be, how this thing should be. And I view myself as someone who I don't necessarily want to. I have my big ideas, but it's not as important to me to push out this one big idea. And I think that there is a danger in that when I look at people like, um, you know, you know, people who are far above me in terms of being a peer, like um like John Blow with The Witness, which took so long and everything, or or even uh, Chris Hecker with Spy Party. Um, like, when you have these ideas that you can get lost in them, whereas I'm much more interested personally in, like, getting into a collaborative process where you work on the ideas together. It's not about ownership as much as it is about um, making something as good as it can possibly be, like, and... 
that's what I value uh, the 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 relationships and the the production and the the the, the people who see something you don't see the thing you'll see they don't see rather than the creative uh, lead uh, mindset you know okay okay you know that, that that's interesting but you mentioned kind of before we we got rolling that you were kind of moving away from that now and you kind of looking to go to 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 not be a boss anymore i suppose to not to not run a company yeah i mean that's that's really where i'm at which is like i realized that but that, well, that was, i so so that, that that does feed back into this whole idea of it being a collaborative process it's yeah. like just being around people and building something together I, my my point um for me personally is that um it's been hugely important for me to run my own thing and it's been great to um learn how to do that, how to run a business and all these other aspects. And it's definitely something which I'm not against doing and can and possibly will continue doing. But it's definitely something where I'm aware that it's not, you can't, you know, you can't, no man is an island. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and designers and definitely creative people can think of themselves as islands because there are so many people in other um, mediums, you know, painters and so on that people think of as being these um people who did it all by themselves you know and i think that there's so much more of value in realizing the importance of collaboration and and everything else particularly when you have a medium that is that is like games where it isn't just engineering it isn't just music it isn't just art it's a co- it's a combination like engineers can have good ideas artists can have good ideas and you know they can all be involved and that can make something really quite special absolutely um, so just like I guess over the past kind of few years, like the most recent history, like are you still as excited about games? Like has there have there been games that have come out in the past couple of years that have just blown your mind? Um, I would say that every game I finished is kind of a hilarious uh, project because more than more or less anyone who reads it will probably think that I just hate games because I'm so critical all the time. Um, but I, I would say that I do think games are incredible as a medium and i do love games but my mindset is to to be critical you know so yeah. it's funny that like i like for example like i said i played played uh loot rascals i'm very excited by it. I play other indie things i'm very excited by them but i tend to try and find the things that are wrong about them or pick at them because that's my mindset is to try and what can you do better do you know what i mean like yeah and but also sometimes i'll play something and i'll be marveled just how it was even produced because like, i don't play a lot of triple a stuff but most recently I played um, Uncharted 4. And to me, it was like, I could not actually understand how what I was watching happening was happening in engine. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's unbelievable. There's parts of the game where I cannot believe that a team of whatever size, and it's a huge fucking team, obviously, was able to do that. I honestly watched a sequence of that game where I saw a cutscene or something Nathan's talking to someone and I was like, that has to be pre-rendered. And I realized he was carrying the gun that I was firing. So it couldn't be pre-rendered. It was an engine. Like my mind, like it, that type of thing, that's what kind of, those big things, it's the same way that like I will go and see a Fast and Furious movie and you're blown away by the spectacle of it. Yeah. But like at the same time, it's like, you don't want to make a Fast and Furious movie. You just want to like it, be amazed and marvel how people can produce these, these huge works. And I was just so impressed by Uncharted 4 on that level as a spectacle and as a as a fun object. I have crit- critiques of it, obviously. There's parts where it's like, um, you know, 
the open worldness is 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 sort of faked and parts where you don't know where to go and parts where you'll die because of poor signposting and things like that. But those aren't the full story. Those are things I'll talk about when I finally write up in every game. But um, the story of it is these 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 huge projects that, that there's so many faceless people working on, and I just, I just was like, honestly, like I find those things so exciting, but at the same time so like scary almost you know like oh, it's, ins- uh, it's absolutely insane and like you feel a certain like i certainly did playing through through that that like I, I should walk everywhere like i shouldn't i shouldn't ever run in this game because everything is so perfect and someone has spent weeks making that thing that most people will probably run past admittedly towards the end i ended up running quite a lot because i just wanted to finish it but still there was that point for a while where i was like oh man I, I need to savor all this because someone, someone somewhere has worked really hard on this. Yeah, I did. I remember in the Scotland section of the game, I was in a crypt and I, I was like, I should really look at some of these walls because, like, just not even like a thing. And let's just look at the wall because somebody spent a long ass time on this texture, like, just to make it as perfectly look like a, a wall in a crypt in Scotland as possible. I should respect that, <laughs> you know. Um, Absolutely. It's kind of a, it's amazing to think that somebody made those objects do you know what i mean no, like it's insane it's absolutely insane um so i guess like i i think i think we've covered most stuff like i mean that seems like a an odder place then i'm trying to think of a neater way to to wrap it up um yeah i i, I want to finish I'll, I'll talk about the, the evergame blog because one of the things i've noticed reading back through certainly the most recent entries is how how obscure a lot of the games are is that on purpose do you do you seek these out well as i said i do like a uh, odd strange games and um i would to some extent say that i do seek out more obscure things because a lot of people i say people aren't going to talk about them if you don't talk to them i actually have a genuine love for um the simple series of games which is where edf uh or sorry earth defense force came from if okay. anyone's familiar with that and there's 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 like a hundred or two hundred odd games in this whole series, and there's obviously the famous ones like Onichan Bara, uh, Bikini Zombie Slayers, and um, uh, EDF. But there's all these weird ones that you literally can't find stuff on the internet about. So I've gone to Japan a few times, and I like to like dig through the the boxes and find those because you if you go shopping in game stores in Japan, right? Obviously, there's your 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 uh, mother carts and your you know, your Castlevanias and stuff that are all expensive and everything. But then for, you know, you know, 200 to 500 yen, you can pick up an odd game no one's ever heard of and have an interesting experience with it. I mean, a lot of these games I don't finish and that's why they don't actually get written up. But um, I do like like digging that kind of stuff up. And, and that's, again, it's part of my friend group that, that has sort of like engendered me into that sort of way of thinking. But yeah, I, I just, I love odd stuff and and creator like like people who are people do have like a strong opinion of what they want to make and then make it like it's funny i talk so much about collaborative being the way to go because like obviously there's games like it's very like it's a cliche now kind of like the way that the uh the room would be for for bad cinema but like a game like um you know deadly premonition is i still think it's like an incredible work of art like i think what sweaty did with that is like so impressive and powerful and so much better than people who just view it as like a a bad game that's so bad it's good or whatever you know there's yeah. like i hate that phrase i think there's so many amazing things to be seen in people doing things with a genuine in, intent to make something good and like there's 
Like, there's so many games like that out there that you can find that people wouldn't have heard of. And is it literally a case of digging through baskets and stuff? Like, because aside from your blog, like, there's some games that I've I've just never heard of anywhere else. Like, do you, is that how you discover them? Or is there some secret forum where people talk about these really obscure games? I mean, there are forums where we'll talk about obscure games for sure. Um, I'm not really engaged with any of that sort of thing, but it is it is a matter of word of mouth and uh, digging. Like, I mean, I rely on people that I know to like show me goods. I mean, I wouldn't know what Aska or Garaden was if it wasn't for Brandon Sheffield. So, like, it's exactly like that. People will show you something amazing, and then that'll become you know something that excites excites you yourself. You know, and and sometimes you'll be lucky. You'll just dig into a box and you'll you'll find something you've never heard of, like, a, I don't know, like a baseball RPG or something like that. And you'll like, you'll find it and you'll get to share it. You know, like, I think that type of stuff is like one of the most fun things about games. And it's Absolutely. one of the things why I, why I talk about um, curation and discovery, because like, I think there are so many people out there who would love to play, you know, this game or that game that they've never heard of because it's just not getting presented to them by metrics or, you know adverts is there a specific game that you've kind of discovered that you know you wish more people knew about that you think is just a, a, a forgotten masterpiece in some sense um i do think the new pocket color is something that people should go back and have a really really have a good look at because it's probably still my favorite handheld so i, I it's is like it something it I feel- to a, a, a good level under no circumstances should you emulate it because the clicky stick, man, it's all about the clicky stick. You just got to buy one and buy some games. It's pretty cheap on eBay. They got a lot of, uh, like, the uh, the funny story of the new that uh, SNK got bought by a pachinko manufacturer called Aruzi. Okay. And their decision was to liquidate it as fast as possible. So what they did was start shoving out Neo Geos in these little um, blister packs where they would come with the the, the system in like six games, not in boxes anymore. So you can find a ton of games online for pennies. So like you can buy a Ninja Pocket and a bunch of games for like probably like 40 quid or something like that. And it's totally worth it. It's such an interesting little system with a bunch of like weird, fun games on it. And that's something which I wouldn't say I discovered, but I discovered it myself. It's the thing which opened me up to weird Japanese games. And it's one of the, probably the cheapest and quickest ways to get into uh the obscure you know if you want to yeah there, there's you can buy them on uh i just googled you can buy them on amazon for about 70 dollars but you can probably get an ebay one for cheaper than that oh very cheap i bet oh, i'm quite into that you, you might have you might have swayed me yeah i actually when i was last in japan i um i spent a long time digging because i'm such a nerd about it that there was two revisions of the hard, the, the color hardware. There's the original that I had from the early 2000s, and there's a second revision, which is like 12% smaller. And I've been looking for a pristine condition one for a long time, and I finally found one in pristine condition in, I believe, uh, the Super Potato in Osaka. And I was absolutely over the moon it cost me about a hundred dollars so probably about yeah 70 quid but it was worth every penny (laughs) (laughs) it's my pride it's like it's my pride and joy it genuinely is man i'm now just i've gone down a rabbit hole of neo geo pocket color um i I think we've covered all sorts of good stuff matthew i think that's a nice place to to close up but if there's anything that 
I kind of that that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, please take this opportunity now or just let people know no. where they can find your stuff online. I, I, I just I just really like people to uh, know to go to uh, every game I finished dot sorry. Every game I finished was called everygame.tumblr.com. You can follow it. That's the best way. And if you want to follow me, I'm I stupidly made two Twitter accounts. So if you want to follow me, not ever talking about games, it's just Matthew Kumar, just at Matthew Kumar. That's one T K U M A R. And if you want to follow me talking about games, it's my Zines account, which is exp dot zines. So exp dot Z-I-N-E. And uh, that's where I exclusively talk about games and I'm a lot more freer with my opinions. Whereas my other one is more sort of like my, you know, here's politics and Scottish independence and uh, stuff about films rather than games. Because for some reason I have those very separate in my mind. And what's the, the podcast again? The podcast is Loose Cannons. Uh, you can just find it by searching for Loose Cannons on uh, iTunes. It's also, uh, you can probably find it online if you search for Loose Cannons podcast um, uh, on Google cool um was that was that okay for you matthew are you happy with that chat yeah that was bright it's very long though it's like almost two hours i know you don't normally uh go for that long putting Diego down one nothing